the country of the Gadarenes, of course, mostly Gentile, uh, but uh, they, uh, they were nonetheless uh, people that uh, really wanted nothing to do with Christ, even after the miracle uh, was performed. Uh, as Jesus, uh, in the beginning of Mark chapter 5, performed this amazing deliverance from darkness and demons, or devils, as the Bible uses the word devils. Uh, he returns to Capernaum. As you know, Capernaum is the uh, city where most of the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry were performed. Uh, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. The, the Capernaum, if you could imagine the uh, a map of Israel, there's a, there's a the Sea of Galilee is a uh, is a is a uh, an area surrounded by the Judean hills. It's the region of Galilee, and that's where Jesus performed most of his miracles in the beginning of his ministry. He then from there moved from uh, that uh, Galilean area down to Jerusalem and finished, and of course, was crucified uh, in Jerusalem uh, three years after he started. So he's now just beginning his earthly ministry. Uh, his fame is not really spread abroad uh, largely yet, uh, but it's starting to. And there's people starting to hear about the miracles. They're starting to follow him. And uh, so the crowds are getting larger. Uh, and so when we pick it up in Mark 5, Mark chapter 5, when we get to this story, this is the second of the three miracles taking uh, place here in this chapter. The first one was the, uh, the devils being cast out, which Jesus displayed power over darkness. Then we have a diseased woman, uh, the woman with the issue of blood that we may cover next week. And then, of course, this dead daughter that's going to take place. So we have demons and death and disease that Jesus uh, shows complete dominance over all three of these formidable enemies that we have. And he, do, he do demonstrated power over all three. And so when you look at this story here, he's returning from the country of the Gadarenes, and he's coming back from, from there to Capernaum, and he's met here on the shores with another large crowd of people. And that's where this story picks up. And if you pick it up in verse 21 with me, We'll read a few verses and move into this very interesting story, I think, that would apply to all of us today. Verse 21, and when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, my little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. You pray with me and for me. Our Father, we thank you for the story that is before us. We thank you that we've been given insight to your grace, to your willingness to help, uh, to your availability, to the faith of this Jairus, Lord, and what, uh, Lord, you did here in his life. And I pray all of us can put ourselves this morning in Jairus' place and know that when tragedy hits, uh, there's hope. So give us grace, strengthen those that are here today, guide us the truth today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Switch mics there if you could. I think all of us would agree <coughs> that... Uh, tragedy comes to all of us um, at some time or another. I said uh, earlier that 24-7, all of us are subjected somehow to tragedy. And the 
the possibilities of a tragedy hitting us, unwelcomed, unnoticed, uh, unannounced, and yet comes. Tragedy comes. It's a a horrible reality that all of us have. I was just thinking a a couple of days ago how just a few uh, months before we could have had two little boys' funerals in this in this church because of a fire that took place. And out of a miracle and God's grace, uh, their lives were spared. And uh, tragedy strikes unnoticed. Um, everything could be going as normal. And out of nowhere, you get a phone call. Out of nowhere, you get this unexpected, horrible news that has entered into your life. And so that takes us to the story here. And I know about you, but but we're all subjected to that, whether, whether it's illness, uh, whether it's uh, death, whether it is uh, a thousand things that could happen to us. And, and we're all and have and will and could experience that. And, uh, and it's unfortunate, but it is because of the brokenness and the sin curse that we're under. Uh, this is what we're subjected to all the time, whether it's pain of a broken body or a broken relationship or even a broken heart. Uh, tragedy strikes. And I would say this, not all tragedy is physical. Uh, Some tragedy, as you know, connects right to our spiritual lives. There are some that have the uh, tragedy of just a spirit broken uh, to where they are just crumbled because of some decision or some tragedy has hit their lives. They've shed a lot of tears over that particular tragedy. The tragedy isn't going away. Uh, they're hurting because of that tragedy. They're thinking of that tragedy. As I'm preaching now, you're thinking of that tragedy that you're in right now or that you've experienced, that you wake up every day wondering if it's going to go away today, wondering if God would remove it from you today or this week, and it's not going away, and it hasn't gone away. And I would say this when you look at uh, what Jesus said about tragedy or about tribulation, he predicted that. In fact, he says in John 16, these things have I spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. Then it says this, in the world ye shall have tribulation. That's a prediction that is an absolute, that's something that we all know is true. In the world ye shall have, not might, not could, ye shall have tribulation. In fact, Job says in uh, Job 14.1, that man that is Born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. And so we all know this, that our lives are, the Bible says, as a, as a flower of the field. It, uh, it's quick and it's gone. But in that time period, uh, we're subjected to trouble. And it says also in the book of Job 5, 7, yet man is born unto trouble. And so we were out at the grave uh, side a couple of uh, couple of days ago and just looking anytime I go to a cemetery and uh, I just love to observe and watch and see different people's names and uh, some have different inscriptions on the tombstones and and looking at this particular person lived a lifetime and some were shorter than others but now they're not here now they're gone and yet we understand because of the brevity of life uh, that's one thing, but understanding inside that dash between the two dates, between the death and the birth and the death uh, dates of our life, there's trouble. And that is reminded, uh, given to us uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ as a prediction. Now, I will say this, that in this passage, we're confronted with a father. And any father here that loves his kids would understand this tragedy. 
any mother that would understand the mother's love for their child, what this tragedy would be. And this day here, unwelcomed, unwanted, death was at the doorstep of Jarius' home. I don't know what it was that caused him to say, it's time to go to Jesus. I don't know if the fever increased in her, his daughter. Uh, she was a 12-year-old little girl. Uh, I don't know if she started going into uncontrollable shakes, seizures. I don't know if she had that, what we call the death rattle when she was breathing. But he knew that his daughter was at the point of death. Death was at the door. Death was coming into, if you would, unwelcomed into Jairus' home. And his heart is broken. And so in the midst of this tragedy, there's no mistake here. There's no coincidence here. It is at this very moment that we find the Lord Jesus Christ coming from the country of the Gadarenes back to Capernaum where Jairus' daughter lay just about ready to die. And there is no mistakes with God. There is no coincidences with God. There's no um, happenstances with God. This is a purpose, divine a meeting that God is going to have with Jairus. And that's where we find a very interesting story unfolding here. But a little bit about Jairus. And so to understand a little bit about who he is and what it was that took place when the entire crowd, most of them from Capernaum and the region around Capernaum, is there at the Sea of Galilee waiting for him to come off the boat from the Gadarenes to, again, ask and petition for help from whatever disease or whatever sickness that this crowd had. But look at verse 21. A little background here. When Jesus was passed over again by the ship under the other side, I want you to note here, much people gathered unto him. And he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Now let me just note here that Jairus was not the ruler of the synagogue, nor was Jairus a rabbi. He was one of, one of the rulers of the synagogue. So Jarius's job description would be basically to make sure that the synagogue, which I believe the synagogue that we visited in Capernaum, which dated back at least the foundation that we were standing on somewhere around 3 uh, or 5 BC, somewhere in that neighborhood, this particular synagogue had been uh, existing since then. So it's likely that Jarius would have been the ruler of that particular synagogue. What would he do? Well, he would organize a synagogue. He'd make sure things were taken care of. He would make sure the, the services went as according to, uh, to order, and they would be in charge of making sure that people got in and were able to leave and repairs of the building and organizing how the worship would go. This was Jerry's. It's a very prestigious job, by the way. This particular job requires some organization. And the fact that says he's a ruler of the synagogue, and so uh, he had, if you would, prominence. He had some, some authority, a position, uh, and prestige. And in fact, when, when Jairus would walk into a crowd of people, they would know him. Uh, he was someone that would be looked at and reverenced, and they would, they would listen to what he would have to say. Uh, he had authority, and so uh, he, when he spoke, people listened. When uh, he would find himself in a place of people, uh, they, would, they would listen to what he has to say. Why? Because what he has to say matters. But let me say this, as they look at Jairus' life, at this moment, he's meeting the Lord Jesus Christ, 
And whatever prestige, whatever position, whatever popularity he has, that, can I say it this way with confidence, that wasn't, that, that wasn't important to him right now. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't at the top of his priority list. And I'm going to say this real quick here, that his world got really small. And it's the only thing that is on his mind right now is that his daughter, his 12-year-old, as he referenced, little girl, gets help. And you find this religious person is powerless to help in this situation. Religion's not going to help him. Organization is not going to help her. And so his life became defined by a need that only one person had the capability of helping. And so in reality, what he had in the world meant really nothing to him at this moment. It was just worthless. It was vain. Now, can I say this for all of us that just get caught up in the culture of the day, the want of things, the, the accumulation of wealth and all the stuff that they say is going to bring you happiness and going to bring you satisfaction, that none of that really matters. At the very end of your life, at the time where you're going to leave this world, your life gets really small. Really small. It's amazing when I visit people when they're finishing their lifetime, they, they notice things they did not notice before. They pay attention to things that they did not pay attention before. Whether it's a relationship or something as silly as watching a squirrel eat squirrel food out of a feeder. We don't think about that in our 50s and 40s and 30s. We're like, I don't care. But when you get older in life, things that you just didn't look at and things that you didn't pay attention to become more important to you. The stars are a little brighter. The clouds are a little bit more magnificent. Your world gets small. And finding Jarius in this position, his world is small. It's him. It's Jesus. And he's thinking about his daughter. Wow. It's a dying scene here. I want to note here that some people spend their entire lives massing things that are worthless. As Roy mentioned to me yesterday, they are are worthless treasures. (laughs) Worthless treasures that someone else is going to auction it off one day. (laughs) Are you all here? They're going to come and set tables up at your property. They're going to get all the things that you thought were valuable that you collected, and they're going to put them out on the table, and they're going to put an ad in the paper... And that ad is going to go all over the county, maybe all over the state. And there's going to be people that you don't know, your family doesn't know, and your kids don't know. And they're all going to be standing on the property that you so cherish today. And there's going to be an auctioneer with a very quick voice. He's going to have a microphone, and he's going to have a little stand with a little speaker. And there's going to be people that are cursing and smoking and putting cigarettes out on your property and all that stuff that comes and and grabbing things and some stealing things and hiding things to try to grab what you left behind. Wow. Worthless treasures. And I would say when you look at this, the tragedy, this suffering that come to Jarius' home, all of his popularity, all of his things, all of his prominence, prominence, and all of what he was, 
was incapable of helping him. But I want you to note here what is a key to this entire story is what happens in verse 22. And before I get to this, I want to say this. One of the biggest reasons why we don't see a movement of God like we've seen in our country before is because of a lack of what we're about to see here. It's not uncommon. As we are going through conversations that have been made and recorded for us in the Bible with people, with Christ, of what they did and how they responded. This is, again, normal, with the exception of the rich young ruler who left away uh, with his stuff. And he left sorrowing. But here you find something different. Verse 22, behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, to watch this. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. Now, again, we have a lot of people here. I don't know. There's a population uh, estimation in Capernaum of somewhere around 2,000 people. Then you have Bethsaida, Chorazin. You have the outlying regions around there. Nazareth is not really too far from there. There likely could have been 3,000 people kind of, if you would, around this area. I'm just speculating. However, I don't know how many were there at the shore when Jesus was coming, but we do know this. There was one man that stood out out of all the masses of people. And the reason why he stood out is because he was now down, and the Bible says, fell at his what? Feet. The dirtiest part of the body, the foot. Dusty, dirty foot and feet. And here he is, Jarius. A ruler of the synagogue, okay, is now at his feet, the ruler of the universe's feet. And the Bible uses this, this and by the way, names are not by accident. The word Jarius means very simply, he whom God enlightens. Very interesting word name there. Somehow, God opened this man's eyes to know who Jesus was. Somehow, he knew that Jesus was the only one that was going to help his daughter. Somehow, he heard some miracles that he performed, and he knew that if you would just come and lay your hands on her, she'll be okay. So she, he was enlightened. He was, if you would, a spark of some, some divine light hit him that I know that this is my answer. No coincidence, no coincidence at all. And so we find this man of position and power coming before Jesus Christ, and he's reverently praying and passionately beseeching Christ on his face, at his feet. Now watch this. When it says he fell at his feet, it means this. It means to descend from a higher position to a lower position. Something we don't see today. It's kind of awkward, isn't it, to have a, a few seconds of silence this morning. Silence is golden. Kind of awkward to, to be just you and God, even though you're in a congregation of about 250 people or so. Kind of awkward for us to have a time to ponder and think about what we're going to do. We're about ready to sing to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We're about ready to bring our voices together for worship of our Lord, and we're going to lift up his name and to stop for a second and all the busyness and the hustle and the bustle of life to, to put all that aside and to humble ourselves before a holy God. He fell at his feet. A ruler of the synagogue 
at the feet of Jesus Christ. In other words, big man, the big man humbled himself. The big man got low. And I dare say, ladies and gentlemen, the reason why we don't see God work in an incredible way is because we're not low enough. American exceptionalism and our American pride and all the other things that puff us up and make us feel like, man, we're somebody. No, we're not. We're sinners saved by the grace of God. Humility is the key to God's grace. You say, Pastor, I'm humble. And I would ask if you would to think about what you just said in your heart. I'm humble enough. I was listening to Brother Aaron Samples, pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Urbana. He actually spoke to our teenagers on Friday night. A tremendous message he brought on pride. And I'm going to borrow, if I could, by God's grace, the statement that he made about himself and apply it to me. When he said in his opening statement to the teenagers on Friday night, saying this, I am a prideful man seeking humility by the grace of God. And I would say, ladies and gentlemen, if we could just be honest, all of us struggle with ourselves, our pride. And it's manifested in all kinds of different ways. But pride is the key to not getting anything from God. And humility is the key to receiving grace from God. Are you all here? So every time we find this, every time we find someone at the feet of Jesus, they're leaving having had given the answer that they wanted. Look, if you would, in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5 and verse number 5. Familiar, but maybe all too familiar. Amen. Sometimes we, we just read over these verses, and I, my wife knows as I'm working through a study on pride, I'm trying to get her to see her pride. <laughs> no. I'm dealing with me. <laughs> we laugh about that. I see, I'm working through it. I said, Lynn, this is helping me so much. I'm looking at all the verses where it looks up, what looks up the word, the phrase lifted up or lifted up himself and the word proud and proud look and pride and haughty. Looking at all these, studying these words and chasing these different examples throughout the Bible where someone humbled themselves and someone was broken or someone was brought down. All of that is a remarkable study that I'm enjoying just for myself. I may or may not bring it to the church, but I know for me it is a blessing that God has given me to get victory and help in our own pride. In other words, this, this man here is coming to a place where he's finally realizing, I can't do this. Look in 1 Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Now, kids, this does not mean that your younger sibling has to obey you when you quote this verse. Okay? We can use our verses sometimes that uh, we love to use. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with what? Humility. Aaron made a good point. Uh, We did not get dressed by accident this morning. I know some of you look like you did. I'm kidding. All right. Okay. But we didn't. We we actually purposely dressed ourselves. We had to uh, clothe ourselves and we had to pick out outfits and put that on and and work, if you would, through a a series of decisions. For me, it's simple. Wham, wham, bam, I'm I'm out. Uh, But boy, Lynn has to lay everything out. 
Girls have to lay everything out and make sure everything matches. We just say, this is good enough, man, I'm out. And sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes we have, or we're stopped at the door. That's not working. That tie's not working. Are you all here? Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. But we have to clothe ourselves. There has to be a time where you purposely grab something and put it on your body. The Bible says about pride, we are to be clothed with humility. Good point on Friday night. That it's something that is purposely put on. It is something that you purposely say, I am clothing myself in. It's Okay, it ain't going to happen. And I'm using the word ain't loosely here. It ain't going to happen by accident. You're accidentally not going to dress yourself. And you're accidentally not going to be humble. It's going to be something you have to clothe and put on yourself. And sometimes my wife, the kid, you know, one of the, we all have, you know, family, sometimes things that come up. And anytime at a breakfast table, someone wakes up on the wrong side of the bed. You know what that means? They're waking up not having fully clothed themselves. I mean, they may be dressed, but they're not fully clothed. And Lynn would say to them, oh, someone's not fully clothed. You may want to go back to get some clothing called humility and then come back to the table. Why? Because it's something to be done purposely. Watch what it says in verse number five. Wow, this is a powerful verse here, phrase here. For God, what? Now, that's a powerful word. Now, if you're online and you do not have your Bible, the word is resisteth. God. God, who loves the world, he says about himself, resisteth the proud. You know what that means? He strong arms. He holds you back. He resists. Okay? Can I say it this way? As he did with Eliab, the elder brother of David, who God says, I have rejected him. Resist. Reject. Hold back. You want to get something from God? You want to be uh, broken before? uh, Or you want to receive something from God? You cannot. Get anything from God with a proud heart. He resisteth the proud. But it does say here, and giveth what? Grace unto the what? Now, giveth is something that is a gift to you. You didn't have it before. All of us love gifts, amen? It's a wonderful thing to get. You didn't have it before. Someone said, I feel that I want to give you this. I want to gift you this. And you like it. So, wow, that, I didn't have it. And so I'm better off by getting this than I had before. But... God says, I'm going to give you grace, but I'm going to do it to the humble. Then it says in verse number six, wow, this is powerful. Humble yourselves. You know what, you know what Jarius is doing right here? He is humbling himself. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but over there in James 4, verse number 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And it says very clearly that we're to humble ourselves. Now, I said this a couple of weeks ago, that we have one of two choices. Either A, humble yourselves, or B, have God humble you. And I think A is the better choice of the two. Are you all here? Because God, the Bible says in the book of Daniel, he is able to abase. What's that mean? He is able to take someone like Nebuchadnezzar, who thought he was everything in a cup of coffee, okay, that he built the entire kingdom, that he was, if you would, the greatest king ever to walk on God's green earth. 
And he lifted up his voice and looked at this whole kingdom that he thought he built. And the kingdom uh, was taken from him. A voice from heaven came and says, your kingdom's gone. He went out in the field and rummaged around like an animal growing claws for seven years. Till he knew that God ruled in the kingdom of men. Who did that? God. So you have a choice. You humble yourself or you're humbled by God. I think one of the greatest truths in the Bible is this. The way up is down. And that truth is absolutely made clear. When we come to the place, when we see our inabilities, and we see his ability, then we are in the position to receive what God has for us. Until that time, resist, reject, hold back. Now, that's why we can't forgive someone else. Now, here's where the rubber is going to meet the road. Stay with me. This is why we can't forgive, because we're full of pride. You know, humble people forgive one another. They do. So it's, it's, it's easy, isn't it, to preach on this as long as we don't get it to where, oh, this is, the, if you would, the litmus test of whether you're prideful or not. You lift yourself up with pride, and it's manifested in your unforgiving spirit to others. That's why we hold grudges. There's, listen, in churches, Bible-believing churches like this, people that are watching online, holding grudges against someone else is a prideful act of a human depraved heart. Getting things cleaned up, having reconciliation, having a time where you're now connecting and coming back together is an act of God's grace by humility. That's why we can't take correction. We're good at giving correction, but we're not good at taking correction. Don't tell me what to do. I already know. It's like the wife that always corrects her husband. Everything he does wrong. Correct, 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 correct. Or the husband's always correcting the wife, correcting, 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 telling him all the things that he's done wrong. How about you, honey? How about you, sir? I was watching on Facebook. Someone was, I get all kinds of stuff to send. And I don't, I'm not a Facebooker. I have no friends. And I'm okay with that. Because I don't want to defriend anyone. I heard that's a bad, bad thing to do. Sounds like playground stuff, but that's, that's just, I, I laugh at that. Anyway, some, some guy was out there, and he's wanting fresh-squeezed orange juice, and, and he puts it down there, and boy, he, she brings a Tropicana a carton, puts juice in his cup, and he says, I want fresh-squeezed orange juice. She takes the cup, pours it out, go gets a dirty rag, wipes the juice up from the t- t- counter, and then squeezes it in the cup and said, there. Well, that doesn't, doesn't fit with the sermon, but it was hilarious. <laughs> we're good. We're good. Listen, we are so good at correcting, but we don't like to receive correction ourselves. Listen, if God is speaking to your husband more than he's speaking to you through you, there's probably an issue. If God is speaking to you, wives, through your husband, meaning, did you get what he just said because you're guilty? Okay, you're probably the guilty one. That's pride. We're so good at seeing everyone else's faults 
and not recognizing our own. That's why we cut down others. We're good at cutting, slicing, cutting, hurting with our words. Teenagers cutting someone else down, slicing them apart, full of pride. And that's why we want preeminence. That's why we want to be in charge. That's why we want to be seen. That's why we want to be the one that everyone looks at. Pride. Full of pride. That's why we won't serve. That's why we won't pray. Why would you pray? <clears throat> you can do it yourself. Why would you need God when you can do it yourself? <clears throat> Humility brings us to the very throne of grace. Excuse me. <coughs> so when we're constantly finding fault with others, <coughs> I got a frog in my throat, and it just crossed its legs. <coughs> <coughs> So here's Jarius. He's now humbled. Watch what he acknowledges here real quick, and I'm out of time. <clears throat> Watch what he acknowledges in verse number 23. <clears throat> he says, my daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. Now, he knew that if Jesus would get to her, it would be okay. That's acknowledging. What are you saying? I can't do it, but I know you can. <laughs> I, I can't do this. I, I can't fix it. I've tried. We put all the medication, all the things that the doctors say to put into her. This is not helping. She's now turning uh, to the worst. She's going to die, and I can't help her. I need your help. I need you to come, and you need to come quickly. And listen, this is the place that we need to get to in life, whether, whether it's salvation, if you're lost, whether it's a need in your life and you're saved. When you and your soul cries out to God, that I am totally incapable of fixing this. This is a parent dealing with a kid or a grandparent with a grandchild. I can't do anything. If I say something, it could hurt them. If I don't say something... It could hurt them. What do I say? How do I say it? How do I approach this? When is it pushy? When is it not pushy? What do I do with this kid? What do I do with this situation? God, it is yours. I can't fix it. That is a good place to be. We have to reach that place. And we know that we... Can't do it. We know that he can. I'm not going to unpack that whole idea of submission to God, but I will say this. What happens next is probably the hardest part of this lesson because when I look at this, it's one thing to get an answer from God immediately, and I love it. When we pray, get an answer, wow. Pray for salvation, someone gets saved, praise God. Pray for someone that was going to a surgery, surgery successful, wonderful. Or pray that uh, uh, God would bring someone, something together and fix it, it's fixed, it's done. We check it off, praise God. It's wonderful, isn't it? I love it. How about when he doesn't answer? How about when he doesn't, uh, doesn't respond in our time? You realize the biggest problem typically we have is God's timing. That's the biggest, can we just say, the biggest problem we have with God, not that we have a problem with God, but if we had a problem with anything that he does, is that he doesn't do it in the timing that we 
thought he would do it in. That, that is primarily the biggest issue that we have. Why doesn't he fix it? Why, is it? why doesn't he take this away? You're not alone. By the way, David said, how long, O Lord? How long? How long is this going to take place? So, this brings up a very painful thing that takes place here. In verse 24, and Jesus went with him, which is good. Can I just stop here and say this? It's good. Jesus is now alongside of Jairus, hand in hand, heading back to Jairus' house. I can imagine how Jairus is feeling right now. Wow, this is good. I knew it was close. I knew it was getting close. She's about to die, but I got the one that can heal. He is right here. This is good. Crowds all around him, but he's going to my house. Woo! That's good. Jesus went with him. Can I just say this? That Jesus wants to go with you. Jesus is available to help us. And Jesus went with him. What a comforting word. I don't know what they said on the way. Oh, I just heard so many things about you. This is so wonderful. I'm so glad you're going back to my house. And you can imagine, that I don't know, the conversation is not given to us in this passage, but we just know that Jesus went with him. And I just want to push back against the idea that Jesus doesn't care. Because Satan and even others are good at convincing us that he doesn't really care. But the Bible promise says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden. How about you, mom? You're heavy laden. You're hurting. How about you, dad? How about you, teenage? You got a lot on your plate. You're burdened down. Come unto me, all ye that labor. Who is that? All of us. And I'll give you rest. So, he's going with them. Success. I'm getting the answer I wanted. Everything's going well. Time out. We got someone else that needs some help. And here comes a woman that had an issue of blood for the same amount of time that this other girl's alive. Twelve years. Very interesting coincidence. She comes and touches the hem of his garment on his way to Jairus' house. And Jesus stops. Wait a minute. He's not going to Jairus' house now. He's stopping. Now, Jairus is now in a position of time. My daughter's going to die. And we're stopped. Who touched me? Well, you know, uh, the disciples, you know, he's always say things that are just kind of off the wall. Well, there's so many people. How can you ask that question? No virtue has gone out of me. And she came trembling and all that whole drama scene. And she's healed. I may cover that next week. She's healed. He's spending time with her, working her through this, and be of daughter. First time he ever calls someone his daughter, daughter, be of good cheer. It's wonderful as she is getting healed, and this is a good thing. Amen? I mean, this is a good delay. But my daughter's still going to die. Then it says in verse 35, while he yet spake, meaning he may have been going on and on, amen, which is okay. There came from the ruler of the synagogue's house a certain which said, thy daughter is dead. Um, Then this phrase, 
Why troublest thou the master anymore? Stop right there. You don't need to go any further. She's dead. Again, this is before Lazarus was resurrected. This is before any miracle of one being brought from the dead had ever happened. Watch this. It's gone. It's over. Finished. You don't need to trouble him anymore. She's gone. Now, there's nothing in the text here that Jairus starts to break down. There's nothing in the text that says, had, had you just gone to my house and taken care of my daughter, she'd be alive. Nothing in the text suggests that. However, based on the next verse, I know what was coming into Jairus's heart. And I know, listen, if we can identify with Jairus in this sense, that when tragedy strikes, when it hits you, it's unwelcomed, it's, un- it's, it's, it's unannounced, it hits you hard. Watch this. What do you do? Here's what he says in verse 36. And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, what, is, what was spoken? The news. She's dead. He saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, watch this phrase, be not afraid. Only believe. Now, um, Jarius, I know this is hard. How about, how about the compassion? Can I just say this? Let me get down on our level here. How about the compassion of Jesus Christ right here? That he takes time. Now, he could have said nothing to him and just said, let's just go to your house. Let's go see what we can do. Be not afraid. Now, how about those comforting words? You know what's happening right here? Fear. Fear as well. Anxiety. Fear. She's gone. She's dead. My 12-year-old, I'm not going to hold her again. I'm not going to hear that little laugh again. I'm not going to hear her giggle anymore. She's not going to be in her room. She's not going to come to the dinner table. She's not going to help mom in the kitchen to make cookies for me. She's gone. Y'all hear? Oh, Jesus stops. Here's the words. Be not afraid. Jarius, it's okay. Only believe. Now, he would have to, at this very moment, he would have to go against three major issues to believe. Now, this is where the realm of faith works. You all with me? He would have to go over three major, major hurdles for that to be brought to pass. How can I believe? She's gone. She's dead. How could I be one that believes when she's no longer here? He could not believe what he heard. He could not believe what he knew. And he could not believe what he saw. Those three issues. And I could unpack all that in these verses. He saw it. He heard it. And, of course, he knew it. She's gone. And yet, don't be afraid. Only believe. Okay. That's hopeless. Hopeless situation. She was living. She was walking. She was eating. And now she's gone. And now you find here where the answer comes. And, and I would say this, there's, a, there's something to be said about the mockers and the scorners in this. If you want to mock and scorn God, you're not going to see things that others will see. Because they laughed him to scorn. When he begins to give them, she's sleeping, she's not dead. Watch what it says in verse number uh, uh, verse 37. And he suffered no man to follow him, save, watch verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard that, uh, verse 37, he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he cometh into the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeth the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. Now, we have a bunch of people out there. This is a lot of tears. This is a lot of sorrow. Listen, I've been to these situations. These are horrible situations. 
There is a lot of grief. There's a lot of hurting people. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. Now that moment right there, you'll find, and they la- verse 40, and they laughed him to scorn. You ought to be careful of this. When someone says, I believe God's going to do something miraculous, we ought not to laugh about that. Are you all here? We ought not to scorn when someone's claiming a promise from God that God is going to work in an impossible situation. And here's what we typically say. They don't know how bad that person is. They don't know how far gone that person is. They don't know what they're asking. God can't do that. And we limit the Holy One of Israel. We ought to be careful. Not to laugh, not to scorn. Because you're not going to see what others get to see when you believe Because when he says here in verse number 40, but when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and mother. You know what that tells me? That mom and dad weren't laughing. Now the mom's there. Um, I just want to tell you, honey, I know that our daughter's dead. I understand that, but uh, I believe. I don't really know what I believe. He just told me not to be afraid. And this is him. This is this. This is the Christ. And, uh, Jesus said, why don't you two come in here with me? <laughs> I can't this is awesome, man. This is parental privilege. Okay? More than that, because this is parents that weren't laughing and scorning at this outlandish statement that he made that she's, she's alive. Watch what it says. And them that were with him, entering in, watch, watch this. Them that were with him is a reference to Peter, James, and John, just so you know. So Peter, James, and John, then the mom and the dad are in the room alone. Entereth in where the damsel was lying, verse 40. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumai, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say, unto thee, arise. Now, mom and dad are there. Mom and dad's probably holding the other hand. They're petting her head, weeping. And she straightway, the damsel arose and walked. For she was at the age of 12. And they were astonished. I like this phrase, with great astonishment. What an answer. Can I say this? It's a powerful, powerful reminder of the power that God has over some of the most natural problems that we face. Death, disease, and we find here in the same chapter, even darkness and demons. Astonished with great astonishment. Powerful. There was a Methodist preacher by the name of Luther Bridges. He was born in 1884. He married Sarah Vatich. They had three lovely sons who were born in their union. And Well, Pastor Bridges accepted an invitation to minister at a conference in Kentucky in that year, 1910. So he left his family in the care of his father-in-law while he went. It was a two-week meeting, and uh, people were getting saved. The last service closed with incredible joy. People were flooding the altar, excitement. The telephone, the advent of the telephone was just beginning, and he was excited to wait uh, on a phone call from his, from his wife, or what he thought was his wife, about the blessings. And he Wanted to hear her voice. 
And on that long, distant line, he listened to silence as the news of a fire that had burned down the house of his father-in-law. His wife and all three of the sons died in that blaze. That distraught father learned to lean heavily on Jesus Christ. He penned the words of the song that we sing in our songbook during that very tearful, horrible moment of his life. There's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low, Fear not, I am with thee, peace be still, in all life's ebbs and flow. All my life was wrecked by sin and strife. Discord filled my heart with pain. Jesus swept across the broken strings and stirred my slumbering cords again. Now I'm feasting on the riches of his grace. I'm resting neath his sheltering wing. Always look on his smiling face. That is why I shout and sing. Fourth verse. Though sometimes he leads through waters deep, trials fall across the way. Though sometimes the path seems rough and steep, his footprints all the way. Soon he's coming back to welcome me. Far beyond the starry sky, I shall wing my flight to worlds unknown. I shall reign With him on high. Jesus. 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 Sweetest name. I know. Fills my every longing. Keeps me singing. As I go. Jarius. He had the right posture, low. Jairus went home to a daughter that was dead, and he left with a daughter alive. I don't know what your situation is, but I will say this. Until you recognize it, you can't fix it, you're not going to get it fixed. There's got to be a place, a time where you say, my world is small, it's me and Jesus, and that's really all I need.